Welcome to the Petcash Pod. I'm your host, Andrew Petcash. This is the 12th episode of my series where I interview founders, investors, athletes, and the smartest people in sports. Today's guest is Ishveen Jolie. She's the founder and CEO of Open Sponsorship, one of the world's largest sports sponsorship slash marketing platforms with over 30 employees. Ish has received numerous awards, including Forbes 30 Under 30, and was named one of Inc.'s top 100 female founders. We cover a handful of fascinating topics, including women's sports, scaling a company, benefits of having athletes invest in your company, and an inside look at the sports sponsorship world. I took a lot away from this conversation and think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Let's dive in. Ish, appreciate you coming on. Really looking forward to this one. Something in the sports world, there's a lot of men and I feel like I'm talking to them constantly. And so it's always awesome to have a woman on. Can you just tell us a little bit your experience as a woman in the sports world and not just a woman, but as a founder of a company in sports as well? Yeah, well, thanks, Andrew, for having me on. Um, it's fun to be on this side because last time we were speaking, we were on the same side yeah. of the table being interviewed. Um, so I'd say, um, you know, I grew up playing sports. I think you knew that. So I grew up playing sports. And so um, I never really thought about like gender as a thing. Maybe cause I, spoke, I, like, I played women's cricket and women's netball. So it was like never really interacting with the other side. And um, so maybe I didn't really think about being a female when I entered the sports world. Um, and then over the years, really sadly, like you start being like, ah, there's like slight differences. And I think it's much better now. But at the beginning, you know, like I'd walk into a room and they'd think I was a receptionist like versus like the salesperson or you know the agent or whatever else um i think being a founder is interesting um again like now i'd say i think it's a positive because i think like half our team are women and a lot of them join because they want to work for a female-owned business and that's like a differentiating point so i think there's a lot of like benefit but of course um fundraising which i'm sure we'll get to um initially was probably a little bit harder i mean you don't really know right because it's not like a true like for like match but i'd say i imagine that was probably a little bit harder um and then there are definitely um you know sports can be the worst with like a little bit of a bro culture and um in, in a weird way you know when i first started in the working world like there was no kind of gender like we all went for drinks together you know i remember my first job like I went to a strip club with my fellow colleagues, like, and whereas like that would never happen now. I'm probably like rightly so, but the problem is if if that's still happening, but the women are not being included, then that's actually a negative. Or if people are conscious about drinking with women, um, yes, it's safer, but it might actually hurt your career prospects or your networking prospects. So I I, I sometimes find it difficult the whole gender thing. Yeah, I'm just curious. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to this, especially females. Any advice for any of them that are looking to make the jump and start their own company? Yeah, I think it is really important that you are able to interact with men and women and that you um, have the support of both. I would not be where I am today for sure if I didn't have, like, uh, most of my investors are male, my board members male um on the brand side of course like there are a lot of women like influence marketing managers that we work with but like athletes are a lot of the male the agents are male so uh, you, you know i think it's depending on your industry but like if you're in a like male dominated industry like like we are like y- y- you got to find ways to and you can do it in your sphere like you know you can choose to have coffees and lunches over drinks or whatever else but you you just have to um it's going to take a while for the, for there to be a, a, as amazing a female network as it is a male and like in my existence of a business 
I am going to interact with more men than women externally. Yeah. And right now we're seeing, especially in women's sports with the growth of it, a lot of the investors are male athletes. Like what impact do you think that's going to play going forward? And, you know, any just thoughts around it, just because you see it every day on the ground floor from working with the athletes who are also often, which we'll get to founders and and, uh, investors now as well. Yeah, I think it's hugely important because, look, if a male athlete has, um, you know, millions more followers than women for now, right, then, you know, a male athlete investing in a female sport is exposing that sport, you know, when, when, um, or you, you see it like pickleball, right? Like yeah. these big athletes have just invested in pickleball. And what they're basically saying is, hey, this is a sport worth taking seriously. And but whether it's a pickleball or whether it's like, you know, shining light on anything, you need the incumbents and the people with the biggest influence to create that change. So, yeah, I'm really glad to see it. And then when you come down to NIL, women especially and i hate to even be a gender in this because like i really just want to talk to you as like you know founder and that but like it it does play a a big piece and people like to skip over it so i figured hey this is a good time to talk about it bring it to light a little bit but in nil especially in the college sports space in america women are kind of at the forefront like right below men's basketball and i would say football what are you seeing on that space and do you think that's going to have a major impact on actually women's professional sports if these college, you know, female athletes are having such an influence, uh, just not only on social media, but just across the country in different ways. Yeah. I mean, we obviously talked about NIL uh, recently and you know that my views are like it's still murky waters and whatever else. So on one side, I'm really proud that the women and it makes sense, right, because females are naturally probably better content creators. They, you know, the, the, the typical influence skews female and is more adept at like social media and whatever else. And so it's natural that like these young student athletes and women are actually better content creators, better influencers um, than their male counterparts. And obviously there's an equal number. And so actually now they've got a chance to shine even more. Um, and so, you know, we have seen deal flow for like softball and volleyball and, and track and field and all of those. So that's great. The problem is, is that when you really look at it, the bulk of that money is coming from collectives and is maybe being paid for non-marketing reasons. And in that case, it's mostly going to the men. So even though there's like these articles about the women and the social and whatever else, are they, if you took the, the true pie, not, not like, you know, not a few marketing deals here and there, but if you took the true pie of the money going into NIL, what is that split? And I bet you it's 90-10. Yeah, that's true. It is kind of skewed because the collective, they're not really getting involved with the athletes because they're good on social media and in true NIL, it's because they're talented. But on the female side, I mean, I don't want to, I mean, I think we, you know, calling a spade a spade, it's mostly because they have a social following or whatever. It's a true influence. It's not as much because of their talent. Um, But do you think we're going to see more even, and then we'll kind of dip out of the NIL space here, but more collectives or just initiatives focused towards you know, the woman's, the woman in college sports? I don't think we'll see more collectives doing it because I think the collective purpose is set up with this purpose of mind of like, let's keep the best talent at the school. I, I suppose it depends if you start seeing, you know, um, swimmers transferring schools because if they, mm-hmm. and, and it'll be interesting because we've not had, I want to like, when was the Olympics? Like, but we've not really had like a, an IL cycle. Yeah, so we've not had an, an NIL with an Olympics year mm. or, 
you know, we've not seen a, a time, like maybe the Women's World Cup if they were, but there's not enough female athletes playing in that, I suppose. But you, basically, it'd be Olympics is probably a great example because that was a time I remember when, you know, they talked about Katie Ledecky, you know, mm. how much would she have made if she could have done an NIL deal? It would have been worth millions and maybe some school would have like chosen to bring her over. For my, so I think the collectives are very focused on like the attracting the best talent to the schools and retaining I do think we will see an increase in the sponsorship deals, but it's a grind. Um, and, you know, it's platforms like ours and everyone else who are like trying to make that happen. And so um, that will continue to increase and hopefully it will be an equal, if not heavier split towards the females. My problem is the collective. Kind of yeah. It. Yeah. It's interesting. Even you look at Livy Dunn at LSU and she's like selling out arenas. Like people will say, oh, it's because of the event, but it's like a lot of males like younger males in college coming to watch her. Do you think that's a positive for the sport and women's sports or like what's your kind of opinion on that? Yeah, I think I think it's amazing. I mean, it's like the same as football. I think it's just a case of, you know, at the end of the day, like it's it's a lot of the coaches, right, who are the football coaches and basketball po- coaches in schools are so prominent that they're able to like, you know, get the biggest budgets and get the best players and get these collectives to, to think their way. And so will there be will the coaches of like other teams, sports, like, you know, the, the different teams be able to go to a collective and say, hey, get me, you know, these athletes and whatever else. And if so, then, but I, you know, anything that increases the, because marketing comes from viewership, right? And um, brand recognition. And so anything that we can do to drive viewership of female sports is eventually going to feed into the financial ecosystem. What are you seeing? You're based out of London. What are you seeing on the international space? How do people in Europe think, you know, what do they think about NIL and just like college sports becoming truly commercialized, even youth sports now? Yeah, I think most people are just start standard. I like I find it kind of crazy about like the sheer number of, of student athletes and the whole like system. It's just so different to I mean, obviously in pro sports here, like you don't even go to university. Right. So like the whole system um, is so different. And I think there's just a general recognition that like, oh, America, it's so commercialized. Like that doesn't kind of happen here. But it's funny because then you've got like Premier League, like, you know, you've got it's very similar to the Olympic governing bodies here that don't have enough funding and, and the smaller athletes here. So um, I'm hoping it'll be a watch and learn for how you can develop the non elite sport monetization model. Yeah, and you spoke a little bit earlier about you were a former college athlete in London and then, you know, looking into your background, you actually went to India to be a sports agent for a little bit. How did that experience shape you? And and then obviously that will kind of lead us into what you're currently building, um, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with, but if you can touch on that briefly as well. Yeah, India was amazing. I mean, it's where I started my sports career. Um, and the biggest difference was there that it was the second year of the IPL, um, the Indian Premier League, which if anyone doesn't know it, you should look it up. It's amazing um, to cricket. And it, it was all like there wasn't really rules and regulations. So it was like, K, you know, KFC is like, I want to put like a, a crane in the sky and serve chicken while people overlook a stadium. And you're like, yeah, sure, we'll make it happen. You know, like people are like, I want my logo to be bigger in here. And you're like, okay, just as long as you pay us money. And so there was like a very much like a can-do attitude. And um, the way, because the market, the sports agency, the sports marketing market was quite new, we were sitting, the agency I worked for, we sit in the middle. And so the brand thinks you're, you're negotiating for them. And the team thinks you're on their side. 
Um, and so kind of similar to how market like our marketplace works. And so I think a few things happen there. One is I, I, I developed this very like can do attitude, which I would definitely not have done if I'd lived in America because, you know, the NFL and the NBA, everyone's like, you can't do that. And yeah, rules yeah. and regulate, you know, rules and whatever. And so I think that one. And second is uh, to, in America, you you're either on property side or you're on the ticketing side or you're on the brand side or you're on this side or you're, you work for the league. And so I think I got a really nice view of like, both and how like a negotiation works uh, between which obviously really helped when it came to setting up open sponsorship because I kind of understood like the dynamics of creating deals from both sides. There's so many different directions I want to go here, but I, I'm fascinated by India's growth and I'm sure you still pay attention to the space. You know, where is that, you know, the, the whole, we'll just talk about the ecosystem sports in India. Where is that going? And is that like a next major market? Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. I think um, a few different trends. So one is obviously cricket. Um, India has to diversify outside of cricket. Like cricket is amazing and it, it continues to be, but you, you know, it's like you, you've got to have more than just that. And of course they're trying. They, they've got soccer and they've, they have got the ISL, which is pretty good. Uh, they've got sports like Kabaddi, um, hockey, and they've all got like their own leagues. But like cricket is just so bit, so much bigger that, you know, people need to catch up. And then, you know, IPL is only men. So talking about women, it's mm-hmm. really not developed there, right? And so that's a massive missed opportunity when you think about what 1.6, probably more billion people, half of them are women. So um, I think there's things there. But what we're seeing, I think one of the big trends I'm seeing now, because India does have such powerhouses, family wealth, um, private wealth, you're seeing um, these families own teams across the world. Mm-hmm. So um, South Africa just started a cricket league um, and... I believe six, all six franchises, cause I might have got this wrong, but um, I think all six franchises are owned by people who own an IPL team. Interesting. Okay, and then America is starting a cricket league and there's a number of the IPL owners who are all Indian. So it's interesting to see like the, um, the way that American money is going into Premier League. It's almost like um, Indian money is going across the world for cricket and probably other sports as well. Yeah, it is interesting. We see Saudi Arabia money, now India, and then America's going. It's like everyone's just going around in a little circle here. But uh, you speak about the IPL, Chris Paul, Larry Fitzgerald, Kelvin Beecham, there's a bunch of athlete investors even in that league. And when you come to your platform at Open Sponsorship, I, I know Serena Williams and Baron Davis are a part of it. What's your thought process just around athlete investors and from a company side, how important it is, but also just from like the athletes and where that space is going? It's it's absolutely amazing, obviously, to get like validation from athletes, especially when you're, you know, the space that we're in um, is amazing. I think as a startup, it's all about like anything that you can say to sh- show that like you're doing well is really useful. Right. And when you're small, sometimes revenue isn't that impressive. Your team size isn't that impressive or whatever else. And so having like a, a good suite of investors is great. Um, of course, like there's such a huge variance of like investors who write a check and you never even spoken to them because they're maybe part of a group and you can still quote them and whatever else versus like investors that you've actually directly interacted with and they kind of help you and do things with. So for anyone out there, like, of course, if you can get an investor who's actively involved, even if it's, you know, examples of things that we've done is um, we had Serena speak at our company offsite. Um, mm. Yeah, and it was it was on Zoom, um, but she and it was just amazing and you know great for like team morale and everything else. So that's one. Baron, we've done events with, 
where you know we are like hey come and pitch up in LA to help us do this so I think there's different ways that you can use them but like being able to use your athlete investors is like key and where's that trend going forward I mean the pickleball it's basically the whole league is like owned by athletes like what impact is we talk about we have money from India going to America we have all this money in sports leagues going but we also have athletes now becoming like the owners how is this going to impact the space altogether I mean think about it right like athletes make so much money early on and then they retire so early. So at an age where like you and I are still figuring out like maybe our third role or our second job or whatever else, like they've retired with a bunch of money. Now, back in the day, they just like put that into like financial wealth and try and become a broadcaster, right? Yeah. And now they're like, okay, well, AA can have a bit of an impact. I can probably be actively involved with this thing. I, my brand can actually make it happen. And so I see it as a hugely continuing trend and not just for the A-list. I think it's going to, you know, and I know that like um, the NBA and like other leagues are actively trying to educate the athletes on these things. So I think it's going to be a continuing trend. And, you know, like I make that joke, you'll be in a bar and someone will be like, oh, there's an NFL player here. And you don't even you don't even know who it is. You're just like, oh, my God, there's an NFL player. Here. And like you'll tell friends, it doesn't matter. you don't even know who they are. And so I think it's the same way that like it doesn't have to be the biggest name. I think especially if they can add a bit more value and knowledge and introductions. Um, we have an NHL player who you hadn't mentioned, like introduce us um, as, as an investor. And recently I was wanting to speak to the NHL and the NHLPA. So I pinged him and was like, hey, mm. and within the NHL circles, he's like mad famous and influential, right? And so I think there's like, I think there's so much value outside of that top 5% as well. Yeah, and we're even seeing athletes kind of look at Naomi Osaka, spins up her own agency. You were obviously from that world. Now you've built... A marketplace that has some involvement with the agency but there is some of like hey that can be removed and changed where do you see the agency model going over the years and is that going to be transformed yeah it's a good question um i don't know i don't see agency the, so this is talent side agencies i don't see them being disintermediated that much I think we like the idea of the athlete who wants to do it themselves but honestly when they're active like they, as they should be, they're focused on playing. And where we come into place, like the marketing deals, like I don't think they care enough to do those deals themselves. Maybe when they're retired, um, and then they wish that when they were active, they did it themselves. But I, I just don't think it's just as much of a priority. And I do think there's a lot of value in the agent in terms of, you know, as a marketplace ourselves, like we can't do everything like we you know making you show up on time like of course if you pay enough of a margin but then you're basically an agent and so i actually we enjoy working with our agent partners i think the big change maybe you'll see is will there be we have seen a big crop of like intermediary agencies where they have one player and now because of a platform like ours they're like you know, and I think an agent told us this once. He was like, because of your platform, I can be, I've recruited 20 players to do their marketing contracts. And that back in the day, that wouldn't have been lucrative. But now he can probably make a really nice winning from just be having 20 guys on our platform. And he's looking to make, you know, $100,000, not a million like Wasserman is. If you can just briefly, like real quick, 20, 30 seconds, just go into what exactly your platform is like what you've built so far and then uh kind of the initiatives you have going forward that you're either building out or going to be building out 
So you could think of it a bit like a recruitment site where um, athletes sign up to our platform, either themselves or their agents. So we have 15,000 athletes, about half of them are signed up through agents. And that could be big talent agents, like I said, like these mini individual agents with like 10, 20 people on the roster, um, or it can be athletes direct. And basically, we um, ask them for a little bit of detail. It's like signing up for like a LinkedIn account. But a lot of it we pull in ourselves from social or, you know, by other sources. Brands come along. They can do really clever searches like show me athletes in Florida who've talked about crypto or who have 50% Hispanic following or whatever else. They can also put up a campaign, a bit like a job posting, looking for athletes who love Levi's. I'm offering $5,000 in exchange for a social media post and appearance. Athletes will apply, and then we manage everything, contracts, payments, deal management, ROI tracking. So really one-stop shop for everything sponsorship. Yeah, and your team's pretty big right now. How many, how many employees do you have working at Open Sponsorship? I think just shy of 30. Wow. I guess we'll go more on the advice lane here. But, you know, for scaling a company and hiring employees, you know, what have you seen in that space? And what are some, like, key takeaways that you would recommend to anyone that's either going through that process or might be soon? Oh, my gosh. There's so, so many learnings, so many successes and failures. Um, I think hiring is like one of the hardest things, um, yeah. especially as an entrepreneur. Like y- your whole DNA is like, just do it. I mean, that's yeah. kind of why you start. You're like, go with your gut. I'm like, just do it. And then, y- you know, obviously at the beginning, you can't afford to hire, right? Like I'm sure most of your listeners, so you're sitting there doing everything. And then suddenly you, you, you're like, great, I need to start hiring. And then that means that you become a manager, which is a completely different skill set. And so I'd say... Be ready for the role change every time you hire. Like the first time we started hiring people, I was like, shit, I'm a manager. I need to really think about this. And it's different being a manager in a different organization where you manage one person versus being the owner manager or the CEO manager. And then when we hired our first set of managers, I realized your role as a manager of managers is different because now suddenly you don't have a line to everyone. And if your manager isn't great or something happens, there's a breakdown. So I'd say... You're constantly evolving. There's always going to be a new challenge, but there's so many resources out there. Like just Google, like, you know, how do I hire my first tech person? How do I do this and speak to people? So I think know that it's a roller coaster. You're going to fail a lot. You're going to learn a lot, um, but try and be as prepared as possible um, to understand, to try and mitigate the risk. Yeah, you can Google it or you can use, I guess, chat GPT now. Yeah, just exactly. like maybe, maybe they have the answer. But uh, kind of on that futuristic tech, Do you see, I'm sure you're seeing it from the brand side, but also even from athletes having interest and just like the Web3 type software blockchain, do you see that playing an impact in the, I mean, really, I want to say the sponsorship space going forward and not just brands doing deals, but also like actually like the software being used? Yeah, (laughs) I'd probably say that I'm um, more of a like a traditionalist, like despite the fact that I think we're we're probably on the best platform and we're we're, like, I love product and I love innovation, but I'm still trying to build a marketplace here and like sponsorship is so be- like behind in a way that mm. um, I-, I think I'm not, I'm more thinking about like, how do I improve engagement um, within the app? Like, how do we make brands not think about affiliates? So I suppose every now and again, I dabble into like, okay, w- w- do we have a web three strategy? But honestly, Andrew, like when I ask people about metaverse and use cases, and even like blockchain, I'm just like, you're solving a problem that I do. Like we could just hold the money in escrow and not release it until the athlete does a thing. So like all of the security and protection. So in a way, um, maybe controversially, but 
I think we're a good few years away from having to think about that level of innovation. No, I think I think you answered that well. But kind of going on the sponsorship market as we wrap up here, where do you see that space going? Where do you see you know what you're building? Where is this all headed in 2023 and beyond? So big trend is obviously the the um, confluence of influence marketing and sponsorship. Actually, influence. We we had a lunch and learn today with um, a client of ours who is in the affiliate marketing space. And that like influence marketing, affiliate marketing, PR, sponsorship, um, they're all meshing together. And so I think like it's great for someone like us who didn't come into the industry with like massive amounts of relationships. So I think that is a really interesting one. Um, I think obviously still like NIL, the micro influencer, but the athletes really competing with content creators. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's easy for like a Steph Curry to be a content creator because he has a person following me around with a camera. But how do we get, how do you, how do we help the, the six guy on the bench at the NBA to be a good content creator? Cause that's really what's going to drive his sponsorship revenue. That's super interesting. We could uh, go for a long time on this conversation, but Ish, I appreciate you coming on and your insights and uh, I'm always learning something from you. So, so thanks again. Thanks Andrew.